Good evening. So glad that we can be together this evening, this final night in the meeting. I've been very encouraged to see that so many of you have come back every night. And many of the families here have brought their young children with them again and again. I know that that is a challenging thing to do. I appreciate it. I hope that these studies have been encouragement to you. I want you to know you've been a tremendous encouragement to me. In many acts of kindness and hospitality, you've opened up your homes to me and shared a piece of your life with me. I've built friendships, have stronger fellowship with you brethren, and I'm thankful for it. God's blessed me for this time that I've been with you, and I hope in some small measure these studies have been a blessing to you as well. appreciate the eldership here and the stand for truth of this congregation. appreciate Brother Crozier, and I hope you know what a fine, fine man you have working with you here and laboring for the Lord. Uh, as he strives to lead his family in the path of God and to teach your word faithfully. And he does so with zeal, with great ability. And I'm glad to know him and to call him my friend as well. Let's talk about the word tonight, shall we? As we conclude this series of exploring Islam and Christianity, we want to look at the question, Who is your Savior? As we've seen, the differences between Islam and Christianity have been many. They have been significant. And I want you to understand that these are matters of eternal consequence. Millions, millions of people are deceived. And they are lost in a false religion. They do not know a God of love. And it is not loving to leave them there and pretend we're all following and worshiping the same God just by different names. We dare not agree to disagree about Islam and Christianity. And the disparity of these religions is demonstrated yet again by asking the question, Who is your Savior? Do you need one? Is there a Savior? Both of these religions suggest a method of overcoming sin to escape the torment of hell and the afterlife. But one way is true. Let's talk about the need for a Savior. I mean, what brings about this question of a salvation at all? Number one in your notes, it is the reality of sin. The reality of sin is what brings us to a question about salvation. Is there a Savior? Do we need one? What is sin? What is it? I want to walk you through a, a biblical definition and understanding of sin. Uh, sin is certainly something that Islam is aware of. There are the infidels, the unbelievers. These people have sinned grievously against Allah. There is a hell in Islam. I know we haven't talked greatly about the afterlife in the series, but sinners and unbelievers and those that go against Muhammad and, and his revelation, they're going to go to hell, all right? What is sin? Sin is transgressing God's will. Rebellion, lawlessness. Number one, sin is transgression. First John 3, verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. That is a breaking of God's will. That is a transgressing of God's will. That's what sin is. God says, thou shalt not. And we do. That is sin. Sin is falling short of God's perfect standard. Sin is missing the mark in the language of Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short, missed the mark, gone astray fallen short of the glory of God. And sin is quite simply neglect or omission of God's perfect will as well. James 4, verse 17. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And the sad reality is we've all done that. 
We've all missed it. We all do what we ought not to do. And, and we all leave other things undone that, that we absolutely should do in the service of God and for His glory. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sin is severe. Terribly severe. Look at the picture in 1 John 3 and verse 6. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. In verse 8, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil. In Romans chapter 8 and verse number 7, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Casey Moser wrote in his book, The Way of Salvation, sin is the manifestation of the presence of Satan as it is proof of the absence of God. Sin means enmity against God and agreement with Satan. It is rebellion against God and submission to Satan. Sin is ungodliness and the sinner ungodly. Sin is more than simply doing what God says not to do or failure to do what He commands. It is opposition to God Himself. It is enmity and rebellion. To sin is to offend God personally because His laws reflect His character. To sin is to join hands with Satan, to be like Him, to be of Him. How severe is that? And it brings about terrible consequences. The terrible consequences of sin. Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. 2 Thessalonians 1, in verses 8 and 9, the Lord is coming back for judgment upon sinners in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. The Lord is coming back for a judgment upon sin. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the consequence of sin is you need to do a good deed to make up for it. Sin cannot be made up for. It must be paid for. And these scriptures say that just payment for it is death. Again, for Moser, sin is not simply a passive disregard for God. It is an active opposition to Him. And God must regard sin as He regards the devil, for sin is of the devil. Sin and the sinner cannot be divorced. Sin results in guilt. Just as God's wrath is against sin, so is His wrath upon the sinner. And here is spiritual death the state of the soul separated from God and joined to Satan. But I want you to know that man was not made for sin. We were made for God. That's what we were made for. And that's why sin hurts and sin does not bless. That's why sin makes us feel guilty, makes us feel not right. and brings us to this question, what is to be done about sin and here we have two very different answers. First is Islam's answer, and it's number two in your notes. What is to be done about sin? Sin is to be overcome by works. Sin is to be overcome by works. Salvation is absolutely by your works. In Islam, there is no Savior. There is no intercessor for mankind. You're your own Savior. Look at Surah 2, verse 62. From the Koran, Surah 2, verse 62 Surely the believers and the Jews, Nazarenes and the Sabians, whoever believes in God in the last day, and whosoever does right shall have his reward with the Lord, and will neither have fear nor regret. If you do right, and here's a very inclusive verse because it says, 
Lots of people have the opportunity to do right, but doing right is the key. No Savior, no intercessor. Surah 6, verse 51, Warn those who fear through this Koran that they will be gathered before the Lord and they will have none to protect or intercede for them apart from Him. They may happily take heed for themselves. Take heed for yourself in Islam. Man can save himself. There's no need for an intercessor. It's summed up in Surah 11, verse 114. Mark it well. Remember that good deeds nullify the bad. Remember that good deeds nullify the bad. So bad deeds, sins, can be made up for with good deeds. Islam presents to us an image of a scale. What's going to weigh more? Your good deeds or your bad deeds as you face Allah in judgment? When we look at Surah 64 and verse 9, the day He will gather you together on the day of gathering will be the day of judgment. He who believed and did right will have his evil deeds expunged by God and admitted to gardens with rivers flowing by and abide there perpetually. This will be the great achievement and success. Those who did not believe and deny our revelations will be inmates of hell, where they will abide forever, and how evil a journey's end. One can work his way to paradise, or one can work his way to hell. Surah 2, verse 81. Why then, uh, they, why they who have earned the wages of sin and are enclosed in error are people of hell, where they will abide forever. But those who believe and do good deeds are people of paradise and shall live there forever. This concept, one right or two or three rights, can outplace, can nullify a wrong, can outweigh a wrong. And I want you to know that concept is foreign to New Testament Christianity. And yet certain deeds, behaviors are required. Five pillars of Islam. Every Muslim must perform these things if they would have the right good deeds and go on to paradise. The first is faith. This is demonstrated in reciting the Shahada. This is how a Muslim becomes a Muslim. They make a simple confession. There is no God except Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. If you say that and you believe it, you're a Muslim. That's the conversion. You've recited Shahada. You have said your faith. And every person must do this in order to be Muslim. It's the first pillar of Islam. The second is prayer, called the Salat. It is a ritual prayer held five times a day, at dawn, at noon, at mid-afternoon, at sunset, and at nightfall. There is a special system of prostrations. You must be ceremonially clean in order to do it, and then you need to bow in a certain way and, and raise your hands up in a certain way and recite the proper things five times a day. They always pray the first surah, the first chapter of the Koran, and then perhaps other private supplications as well. Although I learned in Saudi Arabia that the community prayers were led and they were recorded, and everyone was saying exactly the same things. But prayer, five times a day, bowing towards Mecca. Almsgiving is the third pillar of Islam. Paying the zakat. This is an annual contribution of at least 2.5% of your capital that is given to the poor, given to the needy. You can give more. Uh, that would not be discouraged, but you kind of do that secretly. But you're going to do this. You're going to pay 2.5%. It is the zakat. There is the fast. 
the fourth pillar of Islam, the fast during the holy month of Ramadan. Fasting for a whole month might sound like a difficult thing to do. But the fast only goes from sunup till sundown. Actually, that's a time of great celebration when nighttime rolls along. But they're not supposed to have any food, have any drink, have any relations with their spouses from sunup till sundown during the month of Ramadan. And finally, the fifth pillar, at least once in their life, they must make the pilgrimage, that is the Hajj, to Mecca. Now, in reading after some of it, it seems to be there's a little bit of flexibility here. The Hajj is only required if one is able. But every Muslim is supposed to go to Mecca and supposed to worship and perform certain rites at the Kaaba once in their life. And it's a lot easier to do that now in modern times. But in some nations, there are people who work and who stay their entire life in order to make this one pilgrimage that they might go to paradise. Now, I don't want you to leave the impression that this list is exhaustive of every good work a Muslim may do. But without these five works, no Muslim will see paradise. These are the pillars of Islam. And so uh, Muslims have been pretty good. They've tried to do good deeds. They've kept the five pillars. They've done their prayers. they made their pilgrimage. All these things. They die. What happens next? Well, in Islam, you go before Allah and face the scales of judgment. And in Islam, every person shall stand before Allah. They will have all of their deeds placed on scales. The good on one side, the evil on the other. Surah 7, verses 7 through 9 gives us this picture. We shall recount their deeds to them with knowledge, for we were never absent and saw all they did. And the weighing will be just on that day. Then those whose deeds are heavier in the balance will find fulfillment. And those whose deeds are lighter in the scale shall perish for violating our signs. Surah 23, verses 102 through 104. Only those whose scales are heavier in the balance will find happiness. But those whose scales are lighter will perish and abide in hell forever. Their faces will be scorched by flames. And they will grin and scowl within it. What will the scales say? Think about yourself in that situation. Have you done more good deeds or more evil deeds? And I wonder how much does a good deed weigh in comparison to an evil deed? I guess at that day we'll all find out. But not only will you be facing the scales and to see, well, have I done more good in my life or done more evil in my life, but Allah reserves the right to change His mind because Allah is absolute. And so even the scales may not strictly be the measurement. In Surah 14, verse 4, God leads whomsoever He wills astray and shows whoever He wills the way. He is almighty and all wise. Surah 2, verse 284. To God belongs all that is in the heavens and the earth. And whether you reveal what is in your heart or conceal it, you will have to account for it to God, who will pardon whom He please and punish whom He will. For God has the power over all things. Surah 3, 129. To God belongs all that is in the heavens and the earth. He may pardon whom He please and punish whom He will. Yet God is forgiving and kind. There's a terrible peril in this works system to remedy sin. Really, it's a bad system for Allah. This system of works is harmful to Allah because it does allow sin against Him to go unpunished. 
I mean, they kind of paraphrase the situation. We're going to put the deeds of man on scale, and there are more good ones than there are bad ones. So punishment is withheld from this man. But what about those evil deeds that remain on the other side of the scale? Does Allah wink at these? How is his justice satisfied if he's truly just? Can he allow some wrongs to go uncorrected? Can he intolerate some injustice? It would seem that such would be antagonistic to Allah's nature if he's absolutely just. That's what's going on here. It's bad for him. It's a bad system for the Muslims. It's bad for mankind. Because there's no revelation that tells how many good deeds are necessary. I've got to do more good than bad. But nothing says how much a, a good deed or an evil deed weighs. The Muslims have no idea how their deeds will stack up in the last day. And because there is no assurance to be found in this system, there is no hope in the future. And so it leads them to act in the only way that the Koran assures paradise. And that is death in all its cause, death in jihad. This is where a Muslim finds assurance he will go to paradise. Several passages in the Koran make it clear. Surah 47, verses 4 through 6 is one of them. So when you clash with the unbelievers, smite their necks until you overpower them. Then hold them in bondage. Then either free them graciously or after taking a ransom until war shall have come to end. If God is pleased, He could have punished them Himself, but He wills to test some of you through some others. He will not allow the deeds of those who are killed in the cause of God to go to waste. He will show them the way and better their state and will admit them into gardens with which He has acquainted them. They died in a cause, and Allah is going to take them to paradise. Surah 3, verse 157. If you are killed in the cause of God, or you die, then forgiveness and mercy of God are better than all that you amass. And if you die or are killed, even so it is to God that you will return. They believe. They make their attack. They die in the process. They open their eyes in paradise. Surah 3, verse 195. And those who were deprived of their homes or banished in my cause and who fought and were killed, I shall blot out their sins and admit them indeed into gardens with rippling streams. Who is your Savior? In Islam, it is you. You save yourself. I want you to think about it. Are you strong enough to save yourself? Are you good enough? Are you noble enough to make up for every evil thought, evil word, evil deed that you've ever committed? Are you good enough to do that? I think what happens is those who are honest enough to say, no, I'm not that good, the same ones that volunteered to do something like dying in jihad. Because then they don't have to fool with those scales. Such suicide is their only hope in a system of works. Their hope is found in utter despair. That is a religion without a Savior. That's not Christianity. Number three, Christianity... And the issue of sin, sin is overcome by a Savior. There's a Savior. 
The Bible is very strong about this. Sin cannot be worked off. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the consequence of sin is you need to do a good deed, or three, or four, as the case may be, to make up for it. Rather, we see that good works in and of themselves are a poor and an adequate covering for our sins. Isaiah 64, verse 5. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Sin cannot be made up for. Even if we could somehow totally make it up to ourselves when we sin against ourselves, or make it up to our neighbor when we sin against our neighbor, how would we make it up to God? How do you make it up to Almighty God? Because all sin is ultimately against Him. David understood this, Psalm 51, verse 4, against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. It is God, His holiness, His justice that has been offended when I sin. His love and provision have been spurned. We have rebelled against His law, rebelled against His rule. How do you make it up to Him? No, the Bible doesn't say you make it up. The Bible says sin must be paid for and that the just payment for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You say, who will die? Well, the sinner will die. The sinner will know the eternal torment of hell for offending the righteous and holy God. Unless, unless God graciously provides that another may die in this place to save that sinner, which is what Jesus did. Sin is paid for. That's what you see at the cross of Jesus Christ. Something had to occur that would satisfy this holy justice that has been offended by sin and the loving mercy of God. God finds himself in a, a situation because he is love. First John 4, verse 8, we said that's a wonderful thing about Jehovah God. That's not Allah. Allah doesn't love his enemies. But God, God is love. And God loves even his enemies. God loved us even while we were sinners. He can't deny his love. He can't deny his justice either. It's perfectly just. Romans 3, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus not that God stops some part of his justice to bring people to him, winks at sin or lets some of it go by. He maintains he is just and at the same time becomes a justifier. How so? The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ shows God's love towards sinners by sacrificing Jesus and at the same time demonstrating that sin is paid for. Nothing's overlooked. Romans chapter 3. And I want you to turn with me there in your Bible to Romans 3, as we pay attention to a few verses in verses 23 through 26. In Romans 3, in verse 23, we know for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the terrible situation we are in, but we go on. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God set forth as a propitiation, that is, a sacrifice of appeasement. He makes satisfaction. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. That He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It tells me Jesus paid the price for sin was the propitiation by the shedding of His blood. And so justice is met. Sin is paid for. And at the same time, by His mercy, there is a means of redemption. He shed that blood, satisfying God, to buy me. Lowly, worthless, sinful me. In Romans 5 and verse 6. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps... For a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Justice and mercy me. Jesus died for me. This whole thing is set up throughout the Bible. This magnificent final sacrifice in Jesus. We look back to the Old Testament and we see that there was a, a copy, a type, of this magnificent plan in the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. I want to notice just a couple of things with you in Exodus chapter 12. How the Old Testament has a shadow of how God can be both just and the justifier, just and lovingly merciful at the same time. For God's nation suffered, the Israelites suffered an Egyptian bondage. And there in this terrible predicament, they cried out, cried out to their God. God sent the prophet Moses, you recall, to deliver them. And after ten plagues, Israel was released. That tenth plague we call Passover. And the situation with the Passover was that God will kill the firstborn of every house in the land of Egypt. Now, it's striking that Muslims know nothing of this story of the Passover. And it's not because Muhammad doesn't talk about the Israelites being in Egyptian bondage and leaving it. He does. In fact, Muhammad retells the Exodus story 27 times in the Koran. He never once mentions the Passover. It's not in there. It's just omitted. No Passover. Allah just finally decided that they could leave. This is truly significant. As we look at Exodus chapter 12 and verse number 5, we see that Jehovah God, in the Bible, He makes a way for the firstborn not to die in these households of the Israelites if there would be a lamb. Exodus 12 and verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You offer this provision to escape the plague. Kill a one-year-old lamb, one without blemish. And do what with it? God? Look at Exodus 12, verse 7. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Paint that blood up on the door frame. And when the destroyer would see the blood, he would pass over that house without killing the firstborn. 
Look at verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so the Passover was to be remembered. It's important. Look at verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Because the Lord had spared the lives of those inside the house. Verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when He sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So what had happened? What had happened was that Pharaoh's, Egypt, Pharaoh's sin had brought about death. They brought about the consequence of sin. But God showed mercy. He would not kill the firstborn to those who would obey Him by offering a lamb as per His instruction. The lamb had to be worthy. It had to be unblemished. And it had to be sacrificed. It had to be killed and prepared in a special way and eaten. And the people had to be covered with the blood of the lamb. They had to paint their doorposts with that blood. Note this. The life of those inside the house was totally dependent upon that animal losing its life, shedding its blood. Note that the protection from death and the deliverance from slavery, from bondage, was made possible by the blood of the Lamb, by the giving of its life. By God's mercy, the Lamb could die instead of the people. And that is exactly what we have with the Lamb of God with Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God. He is the only Savior. As John the Baptist identified Him in John 1, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming to him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For only Christ was worthy, sinless, unblemished. Jesus Christ came to sacrifice Himself, give His life for the many. And the blood of Jesus Christ accomplishes what our good deeds cannot. We look at the blood of Jesus Christ and we see that it washes away sin. He loved us and washed us, washed away our sins in His own blood. Revelation 1, verse number 5. Oh, it does what our works could never do. Jesus Christ shed His blood for the remission of sins for the forgiveness of sins. When He instituted the Lord's Supper, He said, This is My blood shed for many for the remission of sins. The blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sins. We're told without the shedding of blood there can be no remission. It means release of penalty, release of guilt, forgiveness of sins by His blood. We're told in Ephesians 1 and verse 7 that there is redemption in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're redeemed by His blood. We're purchased we're bought. We're ransomed by His blood. We read in Romans 5, verse 9, just a moment ago, how by His blood we are justified. We are made right in the eyes of holy God by His blood because His blood made satisfaction. We are told, my friends, that by the blood of Jesus Christ, His church was purchased. 
We are members, Christians are members of the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. His blood-bought people. His body that He saves. And it is the blood of Jesus Christ that made peace between God and man. Made peace before there was enmity by sin, by transgression. But now there is peace. And so God sent a Savior. He sent Jesus Christ. No one can be saved apart from His name. To die, to shed His blood, that sinners might be covered, might be washed in the blood, having our sins washed away, being restored to God. There is a Savior. There is a Mediator. There is an Intercessor. He is Jesus Christ. Not in Islam, but in Christianity. In the truth. And by the truth, friends, salvation is offered to all. We delight in the words of the Apostle Paul. Words that are surely foreign to the ears of Muslims. That we are saved by grace. What a marvelous word. What a marvelous message that a Muslim who must be sweating the scales would need to hear. In Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How we delight that there is a Savior, a mediator, an intercessor. In First Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. We don't go there by ourselves. We go through Christ to God Almighty. And this wonderful message, this power of God to salvation, this gospel is to be preached to all men. It's to be offered to all men. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're called by the gospel to obtain glory in Christ. How does one respond to this offer, to this message? How can we be saved in Christ? We're saved by faith and obedience. In John 14, the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter, and in verse 21, we see this marvelous marriage that if we love Christ, then we obey. Love and obedience go together. Faith and obedience go together. John 14, verse 21, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. When we come to the New Testament, we see what He's commanded, what He's told sinners to do, to be right with Him. To receive His forgiveness. To receive the benefit of His sacrifice. We need to believe on Him. Believe in Jesus Christ. We talked about this uh, at some length in one of the other lessons. John 8, verse 24, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You have to believe on Jesus. John 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish. We'll never discredit the power of belief. It all begins with faith. But it doesn't end with faith. For He tells us to repent. That you must repent or you all likewise perish. Acts 2 verse 38, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins that we need to confess our faith that Jesus is the Son of God, 
just as the Ethiopian treasurer did in Acts chapter 8. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And as we learned last night in our study, that confession, that confession is shirking his lungs. That confession is the stumbling block between the religions. For if you deny Jesus Christ, you are antichrist, and God's judgment will abide on you. But if you confess Christ, then you are shirk. Allah's judgment abides on you. Jesus is a stumbling block that will keep these two religions from coming together. They're not sister faith, they're exclusive. If you want to be saved, confess that Jesus is the Son of God and be baptized. Be immersed. Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. The preacher told Ananias, and excuse me, the preacher Ananias told Saul of Tarsus in Acts 22 and verse 16, And why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We think about the power of the blood of Jesus. And we study our scriptures and see that it is in baptism, in baptism, where we take full benefit of the blood of Jesus Christ. You want to fill out the rest of the chart there on the top of the page? Because we're told that baptism washes away sin. Acts 22 and verse 16, Why tarriest thou, arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We are told that baptism is for remission of sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, the forgiveness, the washing away of your sins. We are told that baptism saves. In Mark 16 and verse 16, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Baptism doth also now save. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. We see that we are added to the church in the same way and at the same time we are faithful to God's Word to be saved. For we're told in Acts 2 and verse 47 that the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, Peter said in verse 40, be saved from this perverse generation. What did they do? They were baptized. 3,000 souls were baptized, added to them that day. And so he puts you in his blood body, his church, which he saves. By baptism, we are sons in Christ. You are sons of God by faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. You're not an alien and an enemy of God. There's peace now. Now you are a son. Now you are a daughter in Christ. I'll tell you that's a powerful verse there in Galatians 3 and verse 27. That you're baptized into Christ. Because I can't show you the verse in the Bible that says you believe into Christ. I'll show you where we need to believe to be saved. But I don't see the one that says I believe into Christ. And I don't find a verse that says, I pray my way into Christ. So many preach that today. I don't know that verse that says you pray into Christ. But I see this verse that says you are baptized into Christ. The one Savior. And these are His terms of salvation. Who is your Savior? Jesus Christ died for you. To offer you freely salvation. There's an opportunity for you tonight to accept it. By responding to the good news. If you believe He's the Son of God, then repent of your sins. Confess it. And be baptized. Have your sins washed away. To be in Him. In your Savior. 
We have water ready. We have clothing ready. All things are ready for the person who needs to come to the Lord Jesus on His terms and to be saved tonight. And we talk about the peril of this works system. We think, oh, that'd be terrible. I wouldn't want to be a Muslim. I wouldn't want to try and work my way to heaven. We don't want to do that. Don't think works will save them. No, don't think that. People say that. But then look at what they're doing. Look at what they're doing when the gospel is presented to them and they say, well, no, I haven't been baptized yet, but I'm, I'm pretty good. I do better than most. I, you know, I, I'm doing the best I can. I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in the end and we'll work it out. And I want to tell you, don't kid yourself. Do you see how terrible it is to try and be a Muslim, trying to save yourself? Don't think you are in any better position if you reject Christ's offer of salvation tonight because you think, well, I'm better than most. I don't say I need to be baptized. You're trying to save yourself by your good works. And those are at best filthy rags. There's a Savior. Because there's a loving God who has the remedy for your sin. And there's nowhere else for you to go but to the Lord. And you need to come to Him now. We're going to stand and sing a song. If you need to be in the Savior, if you need your sins washed away, if you need to have confidence and assurance and hope for the future, then while we sing this song, you don't need to sing it. You need to make the way forward. You need to confess Jesus. You need to be baptized because you need the Savior. We can help you with any spiritual need. Come forward now. Come to the Savior now. And together we stand and sing. Please come.